Good morning. Good to be with you today. If you are the owner of a white Camry, you might want to miss the first couple of minutes of the message. Uh, your lights are on. And uh, I don't know how much the rain's coming down right now, whether it's worth it to go out there or not, but uh, at least give you that warning. Oh God, we are standing before you, holy God, sinful humanity. Oh God, help us to see the distinction today and tremble. Help us to see your grace and rejoice with exceeding joy to your glory through Christ. Amen. It was in July of 1505. That was 13 years after Columbus discovered America, over a hundred years before the colonies in Jamestown and Plymouth were established in America. But in that month, a 21-year-old law student at the University of Erfurt, Germany, was caught in a thunderstorm. A terrifying bolt of lightning struck the ground very close to him, and he cried out, Saint Anne, help me! I will become a monk! And he did. Raised in a strict Catholic home in Germany, Martin Luther was a sensitive boy. He was aware of his sin. His conscience was troubled. He was depressed and fearful. And that lightning strike that day when he was 21 years old merely raised to the surface that which had been deep in his soul for a long time, that sense that he was not acceptable to God. He longed for peace with God, but he didn't have it. So against his father's wishes, he left school. He joined a local Augustinian monastery, submitting to the strict disciplines of the monastic life. He took vows of poverty and chastity, sought salvation through vigils, penance, prayers to the saints, deprivation of bodily needs, sleeping without a blanket on a cold night, depriving himself of food, Uh, even exceeding the demands of the monastery, he went over the top, seeking relief for his troubled soul, longing for peace with God. He would do anything if he could get that, but he couldn't. He worked so hard to earn God's favor that he later said, if a monk ever got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He searched his heart for every sinful act, word, and especially thought and motive. He confessed his sins for hours on end, then going away and thinking of another less than perfect thought, went back to confess more sin. His confessor and guide, John Stalpitz, was a very, very patient man. But he became so frustrated with Martin Luther in the confessional that he said, look here, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Parasite, blasphemy, adultery, instead of these peccadilloes. Martin became a priest. His first mass about killed him. Terror-stricken before God. Paralyzed, only able to see God as a God of vengeance, not a God of grace and mercy. 
He went to Rome on Augustinian business, still seeking peace with God, climbed the Scala Sanctus, supposedly the stairs that, that uh, were in Jerusalem when Pilate was governor and Jesus was being tried. And he climbed those stairs as was a custom, kissing each step on the way up, hoping to escape purgatory, but he reached the top of that Scala Sancta and had no assurance. He said, who knows? He asked, who knows whether it is so? What about you? Are you at peace with God today? Do you fear that at death you will not be right with God and face eternal judgment and hell? Well, let me make one thing very clear. I am not here today to ridicule or minimize that fear. It is real and it is rational, it is legitimate. God is holy. We are not. We are sinners unworthy of God, having rejected God. We deserve judgment and hell. We should fear that same fear of Luther because we're no less sinners than him. He had to learn what the great hymn writer Horatio Bonar penned, and we just sang, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Luther could have written that from his experience. As much as we admire Martin Luther for his efforts to please God, we must realize, as he painfully learned, that he would never repent enough, never pray enough, never deprive himself enough, never punish himself enough, never do enough acts of love or deeds of kindness, to earn his way into acceptance with God, and neither will you. We are damned beyond any self-help. Let's take a moment and breathe after that opening. Let me introduce this um, sermon, which is part of a month-long series in October as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, launched on October 31. Certainly one of my favorite holidays, October 31. 1517, so it was 500 years ago, when Dr. Professor Martin Luther tacked 95 theses of disputation on the Wittenberg church door. Read an article recently that said that's not true. He did not post them on the church door. That's just a legend. It's true that Luther does not report that. Luther reports that he distributed the 95 Theses uh, to a certain group of people for further discussion. But Melanchthon, who is a trustworthy source, says that he also posted them on the Wittenberg church door. I accept that as a fact of history. But to call that the 500th anniversary of the Reformation or to say the Reformation was launched that day, isn't that a bit arbitrary? I mean, what about Wycliffe and Huss before him, among many others, active a century or more before this? The difference is there have always been faithful carriers of the gospel throughout time, even as it was lost in the church as a whole in the main. But 
Luther's protest gained traction and synthesized concerns as never before in church church, brought them to the fore. And part of that was the invention in the previous uh, uh, century of the printing press. As Luther's Latin, in which he did the 95 Theses, was designed for scholarly discussion among those who spoke Latin, not the common masses. But someone translated these theses into German and made copies enough to spread throughout Germany and thus brought the common people into the discussion. So we're using this 500th anniversary month to address the main issues of the Reformation. An even greater uh, emphasis on this is taking place in two, one each hour, uh, connection classes. I, I saw the announcement and I was tempted to skip church for a month to go to both of those classes. But I don't believe in skipping our regular gathering for worship, so I didn't do that and I hope you won't either. But uh, what a, I am going to one of them as, as when I'm free to do so. And uh, what a wonderful experience to reflect on Martin Luther and the Reformation era. In the broader evangelical world this past year, there have been uh, numerous conferences. Uh, books have been written, been written on these themes. Uh, one very readable example is by Moody Pastor Erwin uh, Lutzer uh, called Rescuing the Gospel, the Story and Significance of the Reformation. If you're a beginner in terms of understanding these issues, this is a great, great place to start. Uh, and it is based, I would say, his number one source, although he has many, many, it's well-sourced, but number one source, the one he quotes the most, is uh, Roland Baton, uh, Where I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther, that uh, is about, I think, about the same age as I am when that book was written. And then I stirred the waters a couple of weeks ago in my column in the Indianapolis Star with an article about the Reformation, and I included a link to a site called a Reforming Catholic Confession. And here's the website for you, but if you just, uh, just Google Reforming Catholic Confession, it'll pull up quickly. And I, I commend this to you, and I want to explain that the C is a Catholic with a, with a small c, referring to the unity or oneness of the church around essential Christian doctrine, for which the Reformation was a very important part of bringing this back to the foreground. And so I, uh, oh, one other one, uh, Desiring God has a wonderful daily posting for all of October, one each day, called Here We Stand, a 31-day journey with heroes of the Reformation featuring Wycliffe, Huss, Melanchthon, Minno Simons, Tyndale, Cramner, Latimer, Zwingli, Knox, Calvin, Lady Jane Grey, that's an interesting one, uh, Katharina von Bora, a former nun who became Mrs. Martin Luther, and the former monk Luther himself featured on the last day of the month, appropriately so. So I recommend these uh, sources to you and uh, uh, urge you to be more familiar with church history, those who've gone before us to whom we owe uh, so much. But today, on the Ides of October, we are in the middle of a five-week series on the central themes of truth that come out of the Reformation. And no, I should correct that and say, no, they don't come out of the Reformation. They come out of the Bible, but came to light in a way they hadn't been for a long time through the Reformation and these are called the five solas, or sole. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fides, faith alone. And Soli 
Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. Now, this might trouble you. We're using the word alone, but five doesn't seem alone. It seems like that's a group, not an alone. Pastor Joey said it was Scripture alone. Then Pastor Jeff came along and said it was Christ alone. And now I'm saying it's grace alone. And next week, Pastor Joey's going to come back and say it's faith alone. And then uh, the last word goes to Pastor Jeff, and he's going to tell us that it's to the glory of God alone. How can five alones be alone? Well, let me explain. These alones have a lot of company. Uh, uh, So that may seem like they're not alone, but in fact, they are five distinct categories in which they are alone in that category, in that particular function. The Bible alone is our final authority over popes and bishops and human reason and contemporary thought, uh, thus scripture alone. Christ is the only Savior. He alone paid the penalty for sin and paid the price of salvation. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Christ alone. We're saved by grace alone, not by grace plus our best efforts, good works, or religious deeds, but grace alone. We're saved through faith alone, faith that is directly and only in Jesus. And all of these solas are for the ultimate purpose, not of saving you. The ultimate purpose of all this is not to save you but in saving you to bring glory to God alone. And uh, Bach and Handel, Bach particularly, was famous for putting that reference, uh, Sola Deo Gloria, at the bottom of each of his compositions, and I believe Handel's Messiah uh, does the same. Well, today, I get to preach Sola Gratia, Grace Alone, And from what we've said already about Martin Luther and his miserable and ineffective efforts to satisfy the righteousness of God, it's obvious that Luther didn't understand grace. He knew about the holiness of God. He knew about the sinfulness of man, particularly his own sin that condemned and terrified him, but he he didn't understand grace. He assumed that he just had to try harder to somehow please God. But the harder he tried, the more obvious it became that he couldn't do it. He could not and would not succeed. What is grace? The root concept is found in the Old Testament word chesed, found 250 times in the Old Testament, often translated steadfast love. Uh, We preached Psalm 136 last July, first Sunday in July, and uh, 26 times the psalmist says, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's really a word that ties in very much with the word grace. It has a range of meaning, goodness, mercy, kindness, faithfulness, devotion, loving kindness, favor, that word chesed. But in the New Testament, the key word that encapsulates those ideas and really brings them together is the word grace. The loving kindness of God that is a gift from God, the reflection of God's mercy and goodness and favor toward the undeserving, the helpless ones. That's you, that's me. Grace is found 118 times in the New Testament, 18 in Romans, 14 in 2 Corinthians, 12 in the letter to the Ephesians, 8 in 1 Peter, that's ESV, 
Paul begins all of his letters, grace to you, some form of grace to you. Sometimes he adds peace or another word. He ends all of his letters but Romans with some form of grace to you. Grace comes to us in all of life, but in regard to sola gratia, what we're talking about today, we're speaking of grace as it relates to salvation or justification, the basis for the forgiveness of sin, the gift of eternal life, and what it means to become a child of God, to be born again by the Spirit of God, and sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus, ultimately with Christ in heaven. So we're talking here about the very heart of salvation. So I want to narrow our use of this term grace today as it relates to Martin Luther's experience of terror in the presence of God and his fear of damnation, that is eternal separation from God, even though he was a monk and a priest and a very religious man who devoted himself to all of his religious duties and confessing his sins and yet left with no assurance of salvation. If you don't share that fear with Luther and think you can satisfy God with your good works and religious devotion, then I must say to you, my friends, you are living in delusion. You are fooling yourself in the most tragic way possible and you're in just as much as trouble, just as much in trouble with God as Luther was. If you're counting on your religion and good works, won't do it. You see, Luther understood the need for grace. That is, he knew he was in trouble, but he didn't understand that grace was there for him because that gospel center, the heart and core of the gospel, salvation uh, as a gift of God's grace, had been jettisoned in the church, in the mainstream of that day. Where Martin Luther was as a law student, as a monk, a priest, and a university professor at Wittenberg is described in Ephesians 2. Look at it with me. And you were dead, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now work at the, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now I can already hear some protest. That description in Ephesians doesn't sound like Luther. Luther wasn't sold out to the devil. Luther was trying his best. He worked harder than anyone else to do the right thing, to be religious, to say his prayers, to confess his sins, to deprive himself of basic needs for food and warmth. That doesn't sound like the person Paul is describing here. But Luther knew it was him. That's what following the devil involves. Self-justification, doing it your own way. Luther knew that Ephesians 2 was him, that the righteousness of God was out of his reach. 
He couldn't begin to reach that righteousness that God demands. That he was no better off as a religious man than anyone else. No more assured of heaven than anyone else. You know, the more introspective you are, and I would say it this way as well, the, the more mature you become, even as a believer, and this is about, uh, on the other side of what we're talking about today, but, but even, even as a believer, the more mature you are, the more self-aware you are of your sin. Luther was self-aware as few are. He knew he was spiritually dead. He had no hope of finding a way out. But this realization is the first step toward the gospel. It's the gracious conviction of the Holy Spirit. He had it rough for a long time. To know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that, that I'm not an exception, you're not an exception, to know that the wages of sin is death. So Luther knew his need, but he didn't have the answer. The problem today is people don't know their need. Sin is a foreign concept. You can't start sharing the gospel by saying you're a sinner and Christ died for you. It's meaningless to most people. That's why you really have to start sharing the gospel with, with Genesis 1. You have to explain who God is and that God is holy and, and to be able to see the contrast between who you are and who God is. Luther was more and more irritated with the false hopes of the church through the selling of indulgences, and that's what the 95 Theses focused on, promising reduced time in purgatory for yourself and your loved ones, and he tried everything else, and he knew that indulgences wasn't the answer. But in the providence of God, Luther's sharp mind was recognized, and he was appointed a teacher of philosophy at the University of Wittenberg, and Erwin Lutzer describes it this way in his book, quote, he taught the ethics of Aristotle using a commentary written by the great Catholic scholar Thomas Aquinas. But Luther concluded that Aquinas' synthesis between Christianity and Aristotle was exactly how the church became work-centered, losing sight of the true depraved nature of humanity and the need of God's grace. He was thus convinced that Aquinas, who was revered as the teacher in Catholic theology, had led the church astray. So he was frustrated with this mixture of philosophy with Christianity, and his old friend John Staupitz, with him a monk and a priest, suggested that Luther start teaching the Bible instead of philosophy. And he moved him to that department in Wittenberg. And that's when his mind and his heart became open with the awareness of grace. Now, he didn't start with Ephesians, but he would end up with a glorious understanding of what our text today describes. He began lecturing the Psalms in the year 2013, and was deeply touched by the prophetic words of Jesus in Psalm 22, as Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And suddenly he realized that Jesus could identify with him in terms of feeling 
he was forsaken of God. Yet, he also realized that Jesus had the same experience not because he was a sinner, but because he had our sins placed on him. Because he became sin, not that he himself ever sinned, had no sin in him. But the Bible uses the language, he became sin for us and took the punishment of sin for us. And Luther's just now beginning to understand that. He taught Romans in the fall of 1515, wrestling with the whole concept of the righteousness of God that was so terrifying to him, but was captured by Romans 117. Let's turn to Romans 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's page 1116, 1116. Or you can find it in your own Bible. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And, and verse 17 is the focus that uh, is given regarding Luther. But context, I'm sure he read the context. He didn't just jump to verse 17. And so a little bit of context. He says, for I'm not ashamed, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, faith for faith. NIV translates it from first to last. I think that's what what it's getting at from beginning to end all the way through. As it is written, now quoting from an Old Testament minor prophet Habakkuk, the righteous or the just will live by faith. And he realized, he began to realize That it was not his living up to God's righteousness that was the answer because that was impossible. But the gospel was about righteousness being given as a gift to him received by faith in Jesus Christ. In 1616 and 1617, we're told that Luther spent most of those two years teaching Galatians. We're not going to go to Galatians today because of our time limitations, but, but read the first two chapters of Galatians, and and you'll see how that formed his thinking further around what he was learning in Romans. It came slowly. He wrestled with the just shall live by faith. He kept studying. He came to Romans 4, where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then this pivotal explanation in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, now to the one who works, which Luther had been doing a lot of, he worked hard, to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due. You you, you work and you get what's due, but he couldn't work enough to get salvation to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies who declares the ungodly righteous that's what that means his faith is counted as righteousness none of the religion none of the works but faith in God's provision through Christ Counted as righteousness. Grace is described here without using the word, but backing up to Romans 3, 23 and 24. You maybe learned Romans 3, 23 when you learned how to present the gospel. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I hope you didn't stop there. It says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And nowhere is this theme better synthesized in Roman than in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Luther's long struggle showed him the need of grace. His study of Scripture gave him the awareness of grace. And he wrote, Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sure mercy God justifies us through faith. So he's getting it now. He's understanding the central idea of what salvation is by grace. And then finally, the need of grace and the awareness of grace was followed by the miracle of grace in Luther's heart as he went on to say, Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. 200 plus years later, John Wesley in England was reading the preface of Luther's commentary on Romans in this same concept, understanding of the gospel connected with him. And his heart was strangely warmed as he experienced the new birth. And you see the connection points from Wycliffe to Huss to Luther to Wesley. England was transformed by the gospel and America had the gospel spread throughout the continent, throughout the, throughout the country, through the preaching of the Methodists, from the training of John and Charles Wesley. They weren't the only ones, but they probably did more to evangelize America than anyone else. I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. And when he said that, he, it's like he was paraphrasing and personalizing Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. Look at it. Look at it. Verse 4. Those earlier described as dead in trespasses and sins, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is amazing language. It's saying that, that our assurance is, uh, that, that our salvation is so solid that we're, we're as if we're already seated with Christ in heavenly places, even though we haven't yet come face to face with him. That's the miracle of salvation, which could only be by grace, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Where did he say that? Genesis 1. Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts in the same way the miracle of creation, the miracle of salvation in your heart by the sovereign work of God to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of God 
of Christ. Or as Paul writes to Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, who poured, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs of God according to the hope of eternal life. I've had the opportunity the past four years uh, to do a little writing for the uh, Indianapolis Star about every six or seven weeks. It's my turn. It sneaks up on me, and I have to do a quick rush on a Monday to get it in Tuesday. It started with an article in 2013 that I titled Halloween on, in Church History. And uh, uh, God bless the Star, they never use my perfectly wonderful titles that I give my articles. Uh, they, they always give it some other title, and I'm not always real thrilled with it, but uh, I don't even know what they titled that first article because I don't know if I even have a copy of it, um, uh, the, 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 the version that came out in the paper. It's probably in the bottom of a pile of paper somewhere, but I didn't file it properly, so I don't know what they titled it. But my point was that Halloween should not be focused on ghosts and goblins and, and bags of gummy bears, which is the focus, but on the Reformation. That's what October 31 on that date really matters. Well, four years later, I went, was up for the first Sunday in October, so I again wrote on the Reformation, stretched a little beyond the suggested word limit, worried that they were going to cut back on it. They never have edited me. I'm praising God for that. But uh, they didn't. They let me get away with it, so maybe I'll just keep stretching the words a little more. I don't know. See what the limit really is. As I said, the stars never use my proposed title, but have, to my knowledge, always printed without edit everything I sent them in the article itself. And I was particularly pleased this past round just two weeks ago in the way they formatted the article. Um, they lifted a quote from my article and gave it extra emphasis, and I couldn't have been more pleased with what they actually picked out of this. And I'll show it to you here. Luther discovered, and I'm going to give you um, just the... Um, a little commentary as I, as I read this, but Luther discovered, sola scriptura, that salvation is by grace. You can't even see that, can you? You just have to believe me. That salvation is by grace, sola gratia, on the basis of faith, sola fides, in Jesus Christ, solus Christus, not by works of religious acts that would earn salvation. I so rejoice that they put the heart of salvation, the heart of what I wanted to say in that little insert that's highlighted the point is when you understand that the riches of salvation is a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ that that that's where where it is then you're going to have no problem with <laughs> solely deo gloria to the glory of God alone in Ephesians 1, as Paul describes the riches of our salvation in Christ, he says it three times. I'm going to work backwards on this. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Back to verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what it's about. 
What about the application of grace? That's Pastor Joey's theme for next week, sola fides, faith alone. But of course, it can't be separated from grace alone, though it's a different category and function. But Ephesians 2.8 ties them together. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And don't separate that from the rest of the context. It's not faith in faith. It's not, well, I just believe God's going to save me. No, it's faith in the person of Jesus Christ. By grace, you are saved through faith. And so I say to you, if you identify with the terrors of Martin Luther, fearful, even despairing, worried about dying, maybe worried about living as well, my friend, there's hope for you, just as there was for Martin Luther. The gospel, which simply means good news, is that your salvation, your hope, is not in your hands to rescue yourself from damnation, from hell. If you're in charge, you have no hope. The good news is that Christ died for you. Salvation is not earned or deserved. It is God's gift to you. That's grace. Received by faith in Jesus Christ. Or another way it's said. By the Apostle John. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that's grace, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Would you bow your head in prayer this morning? If you are not assured of your relationship with God, if you have not received Jesus who died for you, I invite you this morning right now to open your heart to Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself. He is the one who forgives sins, who gives eternal life and assurance of a heavenly home. I invite you to just right where you are, you don't need to go anywhere else, you just right where you are in your heart, just pray in your own words, a simple prayer acknowledging your sin Acknowledging that Jesus has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself when he died on the cross for your sins. And to say, Lord Jesus, I want to trust you. I want to receive you to save me, to forgive my sin, to give me eternal life. Oh God, we know that none of us would become believers in Christ if it wasn't for the drawing, wooing of the Holy Spirit. And oh God, I pray that your spirit would move among us, that no one would leave today without that draw to Christ to say, yes, I believe in him as my crucified and risen Savior, my hope for eternity. Oh, thank you, God, for your grace. Through Jesus, we pray, amen.